Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my amazing co-host, Jason Masick. I mean that as a compliment, Jason. The rest of us are all probably going to die of heart attacks and strokes long before you. Uh, I hope so. Wouldn't that be great? Gee, just to see a bunch of people drop that you hate. That would be something else, I'm telling you. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1988 summer comedy, The Great Outdoors, from Universal Pictures and Hughes Entertainment. It stars Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Annette Bening, and Chris Young. Directed by Howard Deutsch. This movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 31 minutes. This marks the first episode of our Summer at the Cinema series, where all the movies we talk about take place during the summer months. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. When an unannounced, uninvited, and unwelcome family of fun-loving misfits converge upon a lakeside resort to join their relatives for a summer of relaxation, the result is anything but restive in this raucous comedy starring Dan Aykroyd and John Candy. It's a vacationer's worst nightmare, as wheeler-dealer Aykroyd, his sexually repressed wife, and eerie twin daughters join the easygoing Candy and his straight-laced clan for a season of fun in the sun. Unfortunately, the only thing these two in-laws have in common is their intense dislike for each other. Soon, it's brother-in-law against brother-in-law in an uproarious and hilarious fight to the finish to see which one really knows how to enjoy the great outdoors. The great outdoors. So that was what's on the box. Jason, another year of our summer at the cinema series. Super excited for this year's lineup. Oh, it's going to be a hot one, my friend. Absolutely. I also wanted to thank you for the actual compliment. You called me your amazing co-host. Of course. Amazing. Right back at you, pal. You're stupendous. That's what you are. Appreciate it. All right, so let's move on to our earliest memories of the movie. Jason, what is your earliest memories of The Great Outdoors? All right, let's get it going, Bill Bant. Now, here's the deal. I remember seeing this film more than a few times on cable when I was younger. It was released when I was 14 years old, but I don't recall whether or not I saw it in the theater. I mean, I remember the basic story of a rustic getaway in the forest wilderness and also the stars of the film. But man, I just couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the big comedy set pieces were or hijinks were in this movie. I only recall the cabin itself as the setting, and I have one story in relation to that cabin. And so here it is, Bill Bant. Shortly after I had moved out to the Los Angeles area, I signed up with Central Casting and started doing extra work. That's just what you did when you moved to L.A. back in 95. It was suggested that to become familiar with how a movie set works, you should either do a bunch of extra work or do some PA work. That's production assistant work or both. Regardless, one of the first gigs I got as an extra was on a little-known film called Till There Was You, which was released in 1997. That starred Gene Triplehorn and Dylan McDermott. I remember going to the Universal Backlot to be an extra on this shoot for that film and getting to the set only to immediately recognize the cabin from The Great Outdoors. 
And that's where we were shooting our scene inside the cabin. I thought it was so cool. It was supposed to be a flashback sequence within the film and the protagonists were meeting for the first time in this fiction and it was like some political fundraiser party or anyway. I knew Jennifer Aniston was supposed to be in this movie and I was hoping to catch a glimpse of either her or any celebrity during this shoot with all the extras. But alas, no celebrities were on the set that day and I recall there was another self-important extra there telling me what to do, which turned me off to extra work altogether, which is kind of funny. But regardless, it was cool being inside the cabin from the great outdoors. It was so recognizable right off the bat. It was cool. It was beautiful. You felt like you were really in it. Anyway, lastly, I'll be honest. This film, The Great Outdoors, is recalled by many as a very, very funny movie with two of our biggest comedians of the era. And my early memory is that I just thought this movie was okay as a kid. It was never my favorite nor my go-to necessarily. I think I wanted it to be hilarious because everyone else seemed to believe it was hilarious. But it wasn't all that for me. So I was really kind of looking forward to this revisit. I haven't watched this film in a long time. And I wanted to see how this film hit my funny bone today. What are your earliest memories of the great outdoors? Well, first off, I never heard that story before. So this is what I love. I'm learning new stuff about my co-host, who's known for... Are we at 30 plus years now? Yeah, we're at 30 plus years now. Oh my God. No kidding. For my earliest memories, I certainly remember seeing the commercials for this movie, the ads in the newspaper with the poster of Dan Aykroyd catching John Candy with the fishing pole, and the poster made it look like it was the cover of a magazine. Um, I did not see this in the theater. This was certainly a rental. Vacationing for me growing up was always at the shore, the beach. We never did the cabin in the woods thing. You know, it wasn't our family thing. And to this day, I have never vacationed up in the mountains. Um, it looks beautiful, but give me a day on the beach anytime. So watching this the first couple of times, because it was a cable staple, uh, the character I most connected with was Buck, played by Chris Young. He was the eldest son in the movie, and we were probably about the same age. And I found his storyline the most interesting because he found a girl up there in the mountains and he had his little summer romance. And the closest I ever came, I might have been about 14, 15, and um, I saw this adorable young lady on the beach. And for the whole afternoon, I was working up the courage to talk to her and maybe ask her to go to the boardwalk that night. I mean, I was playing the whole night out in my head. We would take the trolley to the boardwalk, you know, what pier we would go on, what to eat, the whole nine yards. So she leaves the beach, and I grab my stuff, and I follow her. And I went up to her and introduced myself and asked if she wanted to go to the boardwalk that night. And uh, I got a big no thanks. Ouch. That was a bummer. And um, I still think I had another week and a half of vacation left. So luckily, the place I was staying at was on the other side of the street. So I almost did like the walk of shame across the street and then just walked to <laughs> where we were staying. I think I saw her maybe one more time when I was there. So luckily I had to run into her, have that awkward moment. I didn't have the luck that Buck had in the movie, but I was always rooting for him in the movie. And even during this rewatch, I was still pulling for Buck and uh, Cammy to uh, work out. So yeah, that's my earliest memories of the great outdoors. That's a little bit of a heartbreaking story in a way, but at the same time, I applaud you for approaching the young lady in the first place. That takes some cojones, my friend. Well yeah, done. it probably took me about four years until I asked another girl out again. So it was traumatizing, but I got through it. Oh, God. That makes <laughs> it even worse. Oh, poor Bill. Yeah. 
Uh, it all works out in the end. You know, if she would have said yes, you would have fallen in love. Who knows? And long, you know, started a, a long romance, and you may have never met Hillary. And then, you know, it's all meant to be. There you go. I'm just saying. So let's move on to initial thoughts. What are our initial thoughts of the Great Outdoors? Rewatching it again all these years later. Yeah, no kidding. It's been a minute. The Great Outdoors from the year of our Lord, 1988. First and foremost, as you had mentioned, Bill Bant, in the beginning, total running time of an hour and 31 minutes. Nice and tight. Good old 90-minute comedy from the 80s. This is the second film we're covering that is directed by Howard Deutsch. Because in the 80s, he directed Pretty in Pink, which we covered on this very podcast, as well as Some Kind of Wonderful. And both of those films were also written by the one and only John Hughes. So this was actually uh, their third collaboration, uh, the direction by Howard Deutsch, written by John Hughes. And uh, at this time, Dan Aykroyd is coming off of movies like Spies Like Us, Dragnet, and The Couch Trip, whereas John Candy in 1988 is coming off of Armed and Dangerous, Spaceballs, and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And then he'd do Uncle Buck the year after this in 1989. Candy was doing all right. So this is the film debut of Annette Benning as Kate Craig. That is the role she plays, the wife of Dan Aykroyd, who plays Roman Craig. And I'll just say this right off the bat. Here's an initial thought for you, Bill Bant. I absolutely love the elderly couple that we are introduced to that work at Wally and Juanita's Perks Pine Lodge Resort. That's Wally and Juanita themselves, played by the great Robert Prosky and Zuan Leroy. I just wanted to say they're fantastic. It's a great introduction to this film. Uh, they're gruff and rough around the hinges and kind of gross, and it sets the tone immediately. But they're fun-loving. I should say that on top of it all. Here's an initial thought. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here. I'm just saying I'm not a big fan of Dan Aykroyd when he does caricatures, and let me explain. I do think he's a funny, inventive, and innovative comedian. No question about it. One of our all-time greats. But when he does these over-the-top characters, they tire out quickly for me because there's no real humanity to them. I had the same problem with his character in the film Neighbors that we covered last season. He's got the costume. He's got the props. He can do the walk and the talk. And he even has a specific laugh for this character. So he's done his homework regarding that. But there's no depth for me. Doesn't seem like a real person versus John Candy, who comes off extremely natural in this film. And I love him in this movie. Now, I understand that they are supposed to be juxtaposed as characters. And yes, this is a comedy. But actually just sort of puts on a mask in some of these films. And it goes with that, that over-the-top buffoon character that is really hit or miss for me. I just want to say that's an initial thought for me. Jason? Uh-huh. Same thing. I literally have that written down. I do not oh, like great. what Dan Aykroyd does over the top characters. I'm like, give me Ghostbusters Dan Aykroyd. Give me Trading Places right. Dan Aykroyd. Don't give me Neighbors Dan Aykroyd. Don't give me Dr. Detroit Dan Aykroyd. On the same page. That's hilarious. I'm glad we agree. And I wrote that down right here. I'm looking at it right now. I said, I will otherwise take him in Blues Brothers or Trading Places. That caricature work works wonderfully on SNL that sketch comedy Correct. format. But in the films, maybe it was just a sign of the times. Maybe it's because I'm an adult now. I'm sure it was much more amusing as a, a child watching it. Moving on, another initial thought. I totally forgot about the talking raccoons in this movie. 
<laughs> Me too. They're not really talking. They're squeaking just like raccoons, but they have subtitles. And it is amusing. That brought back in it, uh, in memories right away. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. They got the raccoons in here that have their own relationships with each other and their own kind of through line as they uh, tackle the garbage cans and go through the trash of our families vacationing in the woods. And I do remember them being very amusing as a kid. Hey, I love the appearance by the brick cell phone. That's just a great homage to a, an 80s item, I should say, something straight out of the 80s. I, I used to have one of those. He's Anyway, Dan Aykroyd's character, Roman Craig, has a large black cell phone in this that he's supposedly using for business. It's that brick cell phone. Great stuff. The score of this film, the film score, the music is by Thomas Newman. Love me some Thomas Newman. I've had uh, collected some of his soundtracks over the years, particularly uh, The Road to Perdition, which was in the early 2000s. Thomas Newman, the famous Newman family. Anyway, look, every comedy set piece in this film is completely predictable, which is fine. We know these movies by now. We see the setup coming from a mile away, and we know the hijinks that are coming or that are to follow. This is an 80s movie. But for me, the hijinks in this are not really that funny. And it's almost weird because they're not unfunny. They're just slightly amusing. There's an initial thought. I'm at minute 46 in this film, about halfway through the movie, because it's only an hour and a half, and I just feel like nothing much has happened except for the silly hijinks. And John Candy is just continually getting beat up, whether it's water skiing, which he's actually pretty damn good at, or having bears climb on his car, or getting hit in the head with a golf ball, or while horseback riding, he gets off the horse, and then the the horse runs off, and he has to walk all the way back. And these series of events just keep happening, but there's no story. The events of the movie seem manufactured, as if the writer, in this case, John Hughes, was simply saying, well, here's the we got the general premise, and then we're just going to have this happen, then this happen, and then this happen. There's no real through line or arc to follow we're led to believe that there will be a rivalry between Roman and Chet. That's Roman Craig, Dan Aykroyd, and Chet Ripley, John Candy. Supposedly, Roman's got all the money and Chet likes the simple life. So the setup and expectation is that there will be a competition of one-upmanship throughout. But there's no real high stakes or a competition between them at all. There's actually no stakes at all. It's only Chet getting the short end of the stick for the first two-thirds of the movie. For instance, even eating the old 96er, the 96-ounce steak, it's not a competition between Roman and Chet. It's just Chet taking on an impossible task, and it doesn't even feel as though he's trying to prove something. He's just doing it for the sake of doing it. Again, no stakes at all. And there's a lot of missed opportunities for family rivalry to come to a head, and I'm like, this movie is just coasting from scene to scene, from shtick to shtick, and it's kind of weird. But here's my next initial thought. Wait, wait, wait. This is what I wrote down. Wait. Buck and Cammy are boyfriend girlfriend now. Did I did I miss something? I was going to ask about that, that later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Bill, have you ever heard of using leeches as bait for fishing? No, I was fascinated by that. Yeah, and honestly, I wrote down what the hell. Okay, now I'm at the hour mark of the film, and I'm thinking things certainly have to ramp up during the last half hour to the finale. And yes, of course, now there are going to be some emotional high stakes as Roman has his confessional with Chet. Spoiler alert, and his family. But uh, there's no emotional weight to it for me because I'm not connected to these relationships. Okay, okay, I'll stop with that. Fine. 80s movie. We get it. We're going to have some superfluous relationships. Fine. 
but there's not any real buildup to Roman's character reveal. Roman Craig, who pretends to be this highfalutin uh, investment broker, invents, you know, kind of is a bit of a fraud. So all of a sudden this happens at the end of the movie, but there's really no hints to that fact throughout that Roman is this struggling guy. And thus again, no emotional weight for me. Here's another initial thought. Bart the Bear is in this movie. Bart the Bear is featured in a lot of 80s movies. He's the real star, in my opinion. Uh, lastly, this was written by John Hughes, and you can feel the essence of pieces from some of his other films here, mainly Vacation. That's National Lampoon's Vacation, of course. You got the hapless father who is trying to make the best of a vacation in which nothing goes right, and the hijinks ensue, as I've said many times already. And instead of Cousin Eddie, you have Roman Craig, and instead of the dead Aunt Edna in the car... You have the dead Tompkins. That's the character name. And instead of Clark attempting to bond with Rusty, you have Chet attempting to bond with Buck. I mean, instead of Wally World, you have Wally and Juanita's Perks Pine Lodge Resort. There's a lot of similarities. Now, I'll admit, I did laugh out loud at a few moments. Don't get me wrong. However, my take as an adult, this version of the vacation movie known as The Great Outdoors is underdeveloped and pleasantly average, if that makes any sense. Those are my initial thoughts. How about you? Yeah, audience, I'm going to apologize if it sounds like I'm going to be repeating what Jason just said, just in my own <laughs> terms. So do it. We already know we're the same on how we feel about Dan Aykroyd in that. So I'll leave that alone. But yes, The Great Outdoors. This movie is maybe like comfort food. It goes down easy, but there's really nothing to the movie itself. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe this was written by John Hughes. It almost feels like it was something he wrote like 15 years ago and just happened to find it in a desk drawer and said, oh, let's just make this. Totally agree. It's almost a bunch of rejected vacation jokes just strung together. And then I want to know how much stuff ended up on the cutting room floor because I felt like the setup was too quick. It was Chet gets to the cabin and then two seconds later, Roman and his family get to the cabin And I'm trying to figure out what's the relationship between these two families. You don't know until two thirds of the way movie. It's the sisters that are related. Right. I was like, wait, is it Chet and Roman are brothers or Connie and Roman are brothers? I had no idea. Right. I did like the Ripley family, though, of Chet, Connie, Buck and Ben. They did work for me. And I think... That went a long way into enjoying the movie. I actually felt like they were an actual family because they weren't too over the top. They had family dynamics. Like Chet and Connie were married to each other. I felt like, you know, they've been a married couple that have been married together for a while. The two brothers weren't too over the top with each other. It was, they were here on this vacation together. So they got along as much as they could in order to enjoy the week. And... I get the same thing too. You know, Chet's trying to bond with his kids and his kids kind of have their own ideas of how they want to do this vacation. And you get kind of disappointed about it. And then Connie's got to step in and say, you know, these kids are on vacation too. And so Mm -hmm. all of that, I did like, there were too many instances in the movie. And you kind of mentioned this too. You just get dropped in the middle of a setup. It's, hey, let's go race go-karts and we'll do a quick little joke there. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you didn't set it up. It just You just get dropped into the middle of it. Now all of a sudden we're riding horses. You could have mined some more comedy out of that. Let's crash the speedboat. That had a little bit of setup of all the gangs so far. And then let's go meet a 109-year-old dead guy. 
It's like, that's going to be funny. I didn't get that one. Right. And then there was even that conversation that we just kind of mentioned in our opening quote. This is like five minutes into the movie. So John Candy and Dan Aykroyd are sitting on the porch together and Roman doesn't understand why he wants to come vacation in the mountains. He's like, go to Barbados, go to the Caribbean, you know, Hawaii. So I'm like, why do you want to come here? And Chet explains why. It's like, hey, my dad brought me up here. You know, I just have a lot of fond memories. I just want to pass that on to my kids. And then Roman's like, oh, do you know what I think about this place? And he goes into this whole speech about we should put factories and industrial waste and we can dump it in the lake and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, and I'm listening to this. I'm like, who do they think was going to find this scene funny? If you're a kid, it's all over your head. It doesn't make any sense what he's saying. If you're an adult, I didn't find that funny either. You could have used that towards something else. Like I just, at that point, I just wanted to find out why is Roman really there or the whole family relation or just learn a little bit more about the family. So I don't, you know, I don't want to get into overdeveloping, but you couldn't use that time towards something else. So that was kind of disappointing. And the same thing with, that you were kind of saying. So I thought it would have been better if they stuck with the storyline, which I thought they were going to do was Chet trying to bond with his sons. But they keep getting one-upped by their cool uncle, Roman. And then that's where the sparks fly at the end, where Chet would just get fed up that he's trying to have a vacation with his kids and, and Roman just keeps taking it over. But we don't really get to that. But with all that said, I don't hate the movie. Yeah, right. It's a movie that's just there. This is a movie I think they should remake because it has the foundation, but there's no building material to make something out of it. So I, they should just go back to the drawing board. They have the initial thing. It's two families coming together up in the mountains. And then you rewrite the other 85 minutes. So that's my initial thoughts. Well said. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I like how you said this movie is just there. And as critical as we may be throughout this podcast, yeah, it's still watchable. And there exactly. are moments that, the that are enjoyable. Like It's very strange. So yeah, a couple of things actually. One, when I was doing my notes and going through the film again, I watched it in scenes. So I watched as if I were watching YouTube clips of the film, just isolated scenes. And I was laughing. I'm going, this is good. This is funny. Why doesn't it work as a whole? It makes me think of a more recent comedy with Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg called The Other Guys which I think is, again, slightly amusing. I watch the scenes individually, and they're hilarious. But the movie itself lacks, severely lacks substance, just like this film. And I think the seeds were there, like you were, all, again, like I think we're both saying what you were just saying, Bill Bant. The seeds are there because you have Chet wanting to spend quality time with his sons, just like his father did with him at this cabin. It is a tradition, that's inst it's a family tradition, and it's special for him, and it's heartfelt, and you sense that from John Candy. Great, but there is not nearly enough of that in the film. With Roman Craig, with Dan Aykroyd's character, we understand eventually that he is a fraud, but he is actually quite insecure and doesn't know how to be a good father to his twin daughters, his very young daughters, and... There's one moment I'll get to in a little bit where we see a little bit of that. Uh, that's where I wanted more of that to come through. I needed to see more chinks in the armor because he's putting up a facade. If Dan Aykroyd is going to play this character caricature and he's 
overdoing it and putting on a mask, so to speak, as I said, then let's see that mask come down at certain points and see his weaknesses. And then then the reveal at the end makes a lot more sense and a bonding can happen between these brother-in-laws. Anyway, you could have all that happen between, again, them trying to one-up each other in every instance, like do, I'm going to do this better. I'm going to water ski better than you. I'm going to grill better than you. I'll eat the 96 ounce steak. You know, what if they both try to eat the steak? You know, but there's no real competition, you know, so the seeds were there, but there was no follow through. I think we're in agreement. All right. So let's move on to our favorite scenes or moments. What are some favorite scenes or moments from the great outdoors? All right. Uh, As I mentioned, I'm going to start with the beginning here. I'm just calling this the arrival at Wally and Juanita's Perks Pine Lodge Resort on Lake Potawatomi Minimac in Pechagan, which is located in Clare County, Wisconsin. Did you get that, folks? They're in Wisconsin. Okay, so this is the beginning of the setup here of the overall premise. We see the Ripley family consisting of Chet, his wife Connie, and their two sons, Buck and Ben, driving up to their summer vacation resort in Wisconsin. And they arrive at the resort to check into their cabin. They take in the Northwoods Lodge feel. Of course, the kids don't really get it, but they're reminiscing and feeling it a little bit, the parents, that is. And uh, they wait as no one is behind the front desk, but there is a sign that says, for prompt service, blow me. (laughs) And next to the sign is a small horn, which Chet tries to blow a couple times and gets the hang of it. And all of a sudden, a large dog with porcupine quills stuck in its face props its paws onto the desk, starts barking. And soon thereafter, both Wally and Juanita, an elderly couple that run the resort, they show up and the kids immediately ask, what happened to the dog? And Wally says, well, oh, that dog hates people, but loves porcupines. And she's in heat, too. Too bad you're not a dog. What can I do for you? Well, Chet then drives the family to their cabin that they've been assigned And they're driving to the cabin with Wally, the elderly gentleman, on the hood of the car for some reason. They're just, they're driving very slowly, but it's just funny. They're driving up through the woods with Wally in the hood. I didn't get that. I know. I was like, what are they doing? Wally needs to be on the hood of the car in order to guide the family along the path, to drive along the path in order to get to the right cabin. Wally and Juanita show them their cabin and explain that it's called the Loon's Nest. And that they had a fishing party residing there just the day before, but that party had taken off and now it's all redecorated. And we sunk 300 bucks into it, and that's not counting what we spent on Lysol. I love that line. She says, uh, this is Juanita, she says to the family, you folks enjoy your stay. And Chet responds with, thank you, how could we not in a place like this? And then under his breath, Wally says, ah, you could get the shits from the well water and walks off. (laughs) it's a short scene, but it's a fun way to get introduced to the setting and the situation, knowing already it's most likely going to be a bumpy ride of a stay at this cabin. Again, it's a charming older couple and they're a little rough around the edges, but there's some funny lines. And I was like, okay, we're off. This is fun, easy, light, goofy, silly. And I was in at that point. So I like that scene was a good opening i did laugh at the blow me sign and the hey look the shotgun made into a lamp i thought that was pretty funny too yeah as soon as i saw that poor dog i was like oh porcupine 
I knew what that was now, watching one of those veteran shows on uh, something on cable. And yeah, the line, like you get the shits from them. That made me think like, well, maybe that's why I don't go to the cab. But um, yeah, for me, my first favorite scene, and uh, sorry if I'm stealing from you, is John Candy goes skiing. So the first night that the families are together and Chad John Candy is talking about renting a pontoon boat and Roman, played by Dan Aykroyd, is, is like, pontoon boat, let's get a speedboat. And the kids are all pumped, and of course they want to get a speedboat also. So Chet relents, and they rent themselves a speedboat. So we have a shot of them, and it's um, Ben, which is the youngest son, and Chet, John Candy, are on the dock. For some reason, John Candy's wearing the skis, and he's trying to give his son some quick ski lessons. And he's telling his son, Ben, like, if you get any kind of trouble, we were out there in the lake, what are you supposed to do? And the son isn't sure what he's talking about. And he says, you let go, let go of the rope, let go of the rope. So meanwhile, everybody else is on the boat, except for Buck. Buck decided to go into town. So the other two families are on the boat and they're like, what the hell are the two doing on there on the dock? And... Roman's actually trying to be polite. Like he's probably trying to tell Ben, you know, some lessons. Let's, let's just be a little patient, but everybody else is still a little impatient about this. So Ben hands Chet the rope for the skiing and he starts adjusting his life jacket. In the meantime, everybody keeps looking back at the dock just to see what's going on. And Chet makes a motion, meaning he's motioning about Ben well, they misinterpreted that Chet now wants to ski instead, and Ben's going to stay on the dock. Connie says to Roman, like, oh, I think Chet's going to ski. And they look at it again, and Chet starts waving to the boat. So that's the signal that I guess we're going to take off. So Roman hits the throttle, and they go. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, Chet's in the water. And he's hitting the lake and doing some skiing and his son ben's yelling out to him dad let go of the rope dad let go of the rope but unfortunately he's not following his own advice and now we have chet going around the lake barely missing every boat that's out there his line is literally going over boats so people have to duck in the meantime everyone on the boat is impressed they're like we didn't know chet could ski like this because even though chet's like falling he's doing spins and all He's just hanging on for dear life. Everyone else thinks he's doing stunts. So then Chet starts screaming to Roman. He's like, you bastard, what are you doing? You bastard, stop the boat. And everyone's like, what is he saying? What is he saying? And Chet's wife, Connie, goes, oh, he's saying go faster. Go faster when he's saying you bastard. So Roman puts it up another gear and now they're going faster on the boat. Now Chet starts yelling off. They thinks he's going to die because they're coming over to some docks and some boats. And he narrowly misses all of them, ends up skiing through some sedges and cactails, and then jumps off a ramp that is or isn't supposed to be there. We're not sure. People think sometimes it's a blooper. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure myself it is or not. Anyway, he comes off the jump, loses a ski... And still handled himself quite well on the lake. And at this point, even the people on the beach are impressed about his skiing skills. Finally, Roman brings him along the shoreline. Chet finally skis to the shore. His family's all clapping high five. They're super excited about what he just did. And at this point, Chet is just so exhausted. He literally passes out into the lake. And that's where the scene ends. I like about that scene is the skiing's pretty cool. 
and the stunt person who's filling in for John Candy, the way they intercut that looks really good. I mean, they did a lot of wide shots of the skier, but usually even that, you can tell right away that it would be somebody else. It's pretty seamless. And even the, the close-up shots of Candy, it almost looks like they did it on the lake. That didn't look that phony at all. I was kind of impressed with that, how they put that together. I wish they had that much effort into the rest of the film. I thought the skiing worked pretty well. The intercutting was really good and some good stunt work on there. It's a fun scene. I agree. I'm glad you called this one out because now that after you described it, I'm replaying it in my mind's eye. It's a lot of fun. John Candy is great, and he plays that kind of desperation and danger really comedically well. I mean, he's he's a genius anyway, but I agree. The editing's great. The intercutting's great. It's, it's seamless. You don't think about it, but I thought about it just because I'm looking at it from a technical perspective as well. I'm like, wow, yeah, it really looks like him. It feels like him. He's acting like he's in the, in the middle of it, and it's funny, yeah, when he's like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, or I don't want to die, <laughs> So oh, I'm not dead. I'm okay. And the fact that everybody's cheering him on at the end when he's just so exasperated and just done with it all. It's funny. It's entertaining. It's a good sequence. All right. What else do you have next? I've got a moment, actually. Okay. And this is what I'm calling Roman telling his girls not to be afraid before going to sleep. Now, this was a funny moment for me. And I actually thought this was Dan Aykroyd's best moment in the movie, personally. It's earlier on, and at this point in the film, Chet has told his classic bear attack story about the bald-headed bear of Clare County, and he's scared the bejesus out of everyone right before they're supposed to go to bed. It's the classic ghost story when you're camping, right? So Chet has to explain to his younger son, Ben, that it's just a tall tale handed down from his father to him, and that most of it is made up. But meanwhile, Roman is eavesdropping at the bedroom door, appreciating what Chet is doing to calm his son's nerves and decides to take a a similar approach with his own twin girls. So he goes into this room and he just takes on this persona as if he's being extremely professional. It's, It's very funny. And he goes, good evening. How is it going? And sits down on the bed to calm his young daughters. And this is what he says. I feel it incumbent upon me to set the record straight on the validity of the tale which Uncle Chet shared with us this evening. I know that a terrifying story like that coming from the mouth of a recognized authority figure could be traumatizing for kids like yourselves. I know that because I had a similar experience with my Uncle Roy and a story he used to tell about a family who went into the woods and was attacked by a band of escaped army psychiatric patients who'd been subjected to violent, hellish, torturous behavior modification experiments. It seems they escaped from the metal boxes the army he kept them in, found his family in the woods, fell upon them, slaughtered them, and ate them. Now, that story, it gave me nightmares not to be believed. Well, I thought that Uncle Chet's story upset you in the same way, so I'm here to say that there actually is no bear, and that all that Uncle Chet was saying was just a yarn, spinning for our entertainment. The way that Dan Aykroyd delivers it is great, and it's scary as hell. So, of course, at the end, The girls, after hearing that story, don't sleep a wink that entire night. So I just thought that was a funny moment. Yeah, I found that uh, moment pretty funny, too, because even when he goes in there to talk to the twins, you can't even tell if they're scared or what. They just have no expression whatsoever. And then he compounds it with this tale and they end up pulling an all nighter because you see him in the morning and they're in the exact same position they were when he leaves. Eyes wide open. 
It's a nice moment, too, in the way that Dan Aykroyd's character here, he was eavesdropping, listening through the door as Chet was easing the nerves of his son because his son was scared after that bear story. And you can see Dan Aykroyd kind of thinking about, like, that's what I should be doing. I should be comforting my girls and my kids by doing the similar thing. But he just doesn't know how to do it. So he goes in with this whole approach and tells even a more horrific story, scaring the hell out of him. Yeah. It's really funny. What else do you got? All right. So for my next favorite scene, uh, we've mentioned a little bit, the old 96er. Yeah. So the families go out for dinner and they're at this restaurant and they see this menu item. It's called the old 96er. And the waitress tells them if anyone can eat it, the whole family would eat for free. So it is technically six pounds of meat and probably outside of Joey Chestnut. I don't know if anybody really could eat this, but Chet's like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll give it a try. So the 96er is literally dropped on the table in front of Chet on the plate. And we see a medium shot of Chet and his eyes go wide like, holy crap, this is a big steak. And he turns to look at the chef who's standing there in this bloody apron. And the chef just looks down on him and goes, bon appetit. And even the family, once they see this 96er, they're like, holy crap, this is huge. And it's gathered the attention of the patrons in the restaurant. And now they're starting to come over to see if that if he's going to eat this or not. So then we go back to Chet and he looks like he's got his confidence back. He feels like he can eat this and he's getting his utensils ready and he starts digging into the steak and um, we do a little time jump and we see the uh, 96er is, is getting a little better of Chet as he's uh, struggling through. I mean, he's all sweaty. He's not looking good. And we have Romans listening to Chet's stomach going, okay, processing, processing. You can do this. You can do this. So we see shots of people making bets and everybody's just watching to see if you can do this. And we cut away again, a little dude, a little time jump. And there's just a little piece of steak on the plate and all this other gristle and fat of the, the steak. And... Chet gets a piece and slowly puts it in his mouth and he's got one piece left and everybody's cheering because they know he's going to get the one in and Roman goes to the chef. Hey, he did it. We get our free meal. And the chef just goes, Oh no, he hasn't. He's like, yeah, I know he's got one bite. He's going to finish the bite. Not a problem. The chef's like, Nope, that's not all of it. And Roman goes, all that's left on there is gristle and fat. And you just see the chef's eyes go wide. It's like, that's right. That's part of the 96er. And then at that point, Chet is literally grabbing onto Roman like he's going to start crying because he's like, I'm not going to eat that. And then you even see Connie's wife like, no, 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 please, no, no, no. And Roman negotiates with the chef. Well, throw in some hats and a free dessert and uh, you got yourself a deal. We'll get this done. And then we go to another shot where the door of the restaurant is opened and you hear all this applauding in the background and the family start coming out. You see John Candy, almost zombie walking out, and he's pacely white. He's all in a big sweat. He has no idea where he is. He can barely move. They're guiding him down the stairs. 
all the kids have on um, restaurant hats and Candy's got a t-shirt of the restaurant on him and he could care less that he did this. He looks like he's going to explode. They get back to the house and unfortunately we've mentioned the raccoons. The raccoons keep getting in the trash. Well, they decide that they're going to keep the trash in the house instead and the raccoons break in and now there's trash scattered all over the floor and the whole family comes in and and Roman's got to make a comment like, oh my God, look at the size of the maggots on that meat, which then sets Candy off. And he runs into the bathroom and there goes the 96er. And uh, that's where the scene ends. I know anytime I get full or stuffed at a restaurant, that scene always comes back to me. But it's definitely one of the more memorable scenes of that movie that just has always stuck with me. Absolutely. That's, again, that type of scene Candy's great in it. You can feel it and you feel his suffering. You feel for him. You feel his pain. And Aykroyd does nothing to help. And when you just see that piece of gristle and fat that's left over and realize he has to finish all of it, that's disgusting. That just puts it over the top for me. I'm like, oh my God. And it makes me a little nauseous just thinking about it. So I'm almost relieved when he gets back and and has to uh, puke it all up because it's like, all right, just get it out of your system, man. Just be done with it. Can you imagine going to sleep on a full stomach like that? Oh, no way. Just trying to digest that meat. Are you kidding? He's got the meat sweats. Ah, It's gross. It's hilarious. Uh, Great stuff, Bill. Yeah, yeah. It's a a fun scene. And always, you know, that type of scene also makes me think of uh, Funny Farm. Oh, yes. With Chevy Chase. When he tried to beat the record, he's eating all. I think it ends up being like sheep testicles yep. or something yep. like that. Sheep balls. Yeah. It's great. Always works. It's good stuff. And I'm glad you brought that up. So my next favorite scene is immediately following, pretty much. So after that whole scenario, and once again, it's a scene where Candy has basically gotten the short end of the stick and uh, is just is constantly suffering throughout this film. But at this point now, uh, it's the day after, I believe, anyway, he's feeling a little bit better. And both families are around the fireplace. And Chet is starting a fire, at least attempting to try to start a fire, when Roman begins to critique him about how to roll the newspaper as kindling. That's the last straw for Chet. That's the straw that broke the camel's back when Roman is critiquing him on how to roll the newspaper. So Chet begins to lay into Roman saying he's thinks that, well, yeah, you just know everything and you know how to do everything. And Roman goes on the defensive saying that he and his family should have taken the European vacation they were planning instead of making an effort to be with family. When Chet returns with the statement of, I don't remember inviting you. And finally, Kate, Roman's wife, Annette Benning, chimes in realizing that they're no longer welcome. And... Chet responds with a, aha, what do I hear? We got a bingo. And Roman says, well, thanks for ruining my vacation. And now the argument has really escalated and both Roman and Chet are face to face challenging each other to a fight. But it gets broken up and Roman and Kate decide they're going to take the girls and they're going to leave ASAP and they go up into their room to pack. Meanwhile, in the living room, Chet, his wife, Connie, and their Sons Buck and Ben are trying to calm down when Ben, the youngest one, says, does this mean we won't get a Christmas present from Uncle Roman? And his brother Buck says, oh, blow it out your ass, Ben. And then their mom, Connie, tries to calm them down by saying, OK, OK, nobody's blowing anything out their ass. OK, it just means we're just having some 
emotions. And Chet chimes in with, what it means is that I would like to blow Uncle Roman out my ass, is what it means. Gotti replies by saying, I don't want to hear any more about anyone blowing anything out their ass. And then Ben adds on with, you might as well blow the whole family out your ass while you're at it, Dad. It's just a fun dynamic between the family as they're all frustrated with Roman and his family, but they don't want to point the anger at each other. And finally, they agree that Aunt Kate and Uncle Roman are incredible buttheads. Anyway, this is where a lot of this frustration just comes to a head and it's a buildup and there's a blowout and there's a lot of talking about blow it out your ass. So there's a lot of fun with the play on the words and the back and forth and uh, some good comedic timing. And I found this scene pretty amusing. It's as simple as that. Nothing complicated here. I actually had that scene as one of my complaints because... You understand going into that scene that Chet is at his wit's end with Roman, but you don't see any other family having an issue up to that point. So when the argument happens, Connie starts saying some lines, and then when they're going to come to blow, Bucky gets up to kind of stop the fight, and then Bucky kind of screams at his uncle, where's all this coming from? What have they done to them? At this point, you're the cool uncle brother-in-law, Connie understands that Roman's driving Chet crazy. Roman hasn't done anything to Connie at this point. I mean, she's happy to see her sister. Part of the scenes like almost came out of nowhere, but the whole blown the house out thing. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. Something on the cutting room floor that I missed. Right, I understand. It feels like it's a little unmotivated, and the relationships just aren't developed at all in this film. Right. So... A lot of the things that happen, especially when things come to a head between these characters and these families, just feel like they're out of the blue because there was no buildup. There's just no lead up. So I totally agree with that complaint. I just, yeah, I found all the the blow it out your ass lines amusing. Next for me, um, it's just a moment and it's the fishing scene when for some reason they decide that they're going to go fishing with some leeches and they're out there in the lake and it's like five it's probably six o'clock in the morning at that point the sun's barely out and all of a sudden it just cuts to them on the boat and it's uh, roman ben bucky and chet are on this rowboat and it cuts away to who knows it's later in their fishing trip and the boat has run ashore on the lake it's raining all four of them are fast asleep and they literally have leeches all over them. And it was funny. It was like Roman literally has one between his eyes. And one of them wakes up and just starts screaming like, ah, ah, and points at someone else. And they're like, ah, and he points at someone else. And they're like, ah, ah, and they're trying to pull the leeches off. I found that funny. Like the setup didn't go anywhere, but just that moment for me made me laugh. Just seeing them all covered in leeches because you knew it was going to happen. So the fact that it did happen, I found it amusing. I'm glad you did, Bill. It is amusing, but just slightly for me. That's not a complaint on my behalf. If I were to watch that scene out of context, I'd be like, that's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. I get it. I I like them all being goofy. It's like, oh, they got leeches all over each each other themselves, and then they point it out on each other, and, and they're all screaming at the same time. That's funny. But at that point in the film, it was kind of one of those things where it's just, oh, here we go. This is another, you see it coming. It's like, They're using leeches as bait. Okay, something's going to happen with the leeches. And there it is. That's just like all the other scenes leading up to it. 
we see John Candy on the water skis. Something crazy is going to happen with him on the water skis. It does. Boom. Okay. Uh, it's the 96-ounce steak. He's going to have to eat it. Something bad's going to happen with that. It's another manufacturer. It's just, this would be funny. We'll put this scene in here because that would be amusing. Does it serve the story? Does it move the story forward? Does it develop the relations with characters at all? Does it connect the dots anyway, in any way? Is there a callback to any? No. No, it's just an isolated moment that is slightly amusing. Yeah, that's how I felt about the scene, but it, it's still funny. It's still funny. Mm-hmm. It's just as an isolated scene, it's more funny versus having watched a bunch of set pieces leading up to it that are all kind of the same, like unmotivated. They're just happening. It's just an, oh, okay, here's another one. Leeches. Funny. Okay. We can keep it rolling, Bill Bant, if you're ready to move on. Hey, let's take a quick break and hear from our friends over at the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Hey, do you enjoy movies? If so, you're going to want to check out the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. We're inviting you to join us as we dive into beloved movies from 10 years ago and beyond. We cover every genre and every era. The show is fun and personal, but also insightful and informative. The Retro Movie Roundtable is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please check them out over at the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Now back to our show. Uh, Yeah, sure. Let's move on to Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Do we have any complaints yet left that we haven't talked about already? I have a bunch. Let's run down a few here. I think you mentioned this already. I I wrote down Connie and Kate are supposed to be sisters. Did you get any sense at all that they are connected, that they're familial in relationship, that they have a sisterly bond. Even once you do know that they're sisters, they don't really feel like they're sisters. Correct. Yeah. The first time I was like, Oh, they might be sisters is when they go to the birthday party. And Kate says to Connie, Oh, it's been so long since we've seen you or I've seen you. I've missed you so much. I was like, Oh, maybe it's like, that kind of sounds like they're sisters, but it wasn't proven. So still kind of, are they? There's no real connection there. There's one scene at a table, a dinner table, when Kate is confiding in Connie a little bit and saying, oh, I haven't been intimate with Roman for at least a month. Or sometimes we go a month at a time without being intimate. And she's saying, they're like, okay, here's a little bit of a bonding scene. But that doesn't even mean that they're sisters. It's just, I just thought that was weird. Uh, moving on, I was like, I think we touched on this as well. The birthday for the old guy named Tompkins... He's supposed to be 109 years old. Dumb. I still don't understand why that scene is in the movie. I didn't get that at all. And again, it's like an isolated scene where the joke is the guy's already dead. He's sitting in a like a wheelchair or some sort of chair, and the kids are gathering around trying to be nice, saying hello to him, but he doesn't respond. And then we find out from Wally, who's also not just owner of the resort, but he's also a part-time bartender at the lodge. He comes over and he's like, stop, stop messing with Tompkins. He's dead already. He died on the way here. And again, I watched that scene out of context. I'm like, oh, that's kind of funny. But it doesn't work in the whole, in the through line of the film. So it's like this scene, I don't, I don't get it. Setting up that scene was kind of dumb. 
because Roman's complaining, like, why are we going to this party? We've never met this guy before. We know nothing about yeah. him. He's we like, can go why? watch a female Elvis impersonator instead. Why doesn't it just be like a camp activity that everyone just goes to? Why can't that just be the setup? Why does it have to be based around a birthday? And then you think about the end of the movie when they had the closing credits and they had the big uh, Land of a Thousand Dances dance scene. Mm-hmm. I was like, you should have put that there. Do the setup into the dance. Because the dance is kind right. of fun. Totally fun. Yeah. I, I was, like, w- was going to get to that like later. Fun like this. Yeah. When you watch that scene, we're jumping way ahead, ladies and gentlemen. But during the end credits, they're showing like a behind the scenes glimpse of Dan Aykroyd and, excuse me, no, it's uh, Stephanie Farisay who plays Connie. I think it's Farisee. Oh, yeah. I don't know how to say her last and name either. Annette Benning's there, you know, John Kennedy. They're all fun, you know, at the bar. And there's just a bunch of people dancing and just getting down and drinking and have a blast. And you're like, where was this in the movie? Yeah. Where was that fun scene where you see some camaraderie and everybody's getting along for a moment and just letting loose? And that's where, like, even more hijinks could ensue or something. But that's not until the end credits and not part of the actual story. But uh, anyway, I've got more complaints, but I'll, I'll let you go if you got, you've got some uh, more material. Yeah, I thought the scene between Chet and Buck on the rowboat, that was a waste. They should have rewrote that one. Mm, yeah, agreed. It should have been a better father-son bonding moment. And it was just, they row out there, Chet gives Buck the ring, and Buck's like, oh, yeah, I see that you're trying to recreate what your dad did with you. And he's like, yeah. And then that was it. You can use this moment like Buck's trying to chase this girl and maybe get some advice and you could talk about when he first met Connie and what he did. You got the two of them on the boat. Use it. And it was very disappointing. It totally bummed me out. And I don't even know what, what ring was he giving him? Was this high school ring? Yeah. College ring? Not what clear. ring was it? Right. Why, why is the not ring clear. special? It's all on the surface. Like there's a there was just a basic idea and it's just not flushed out. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Good call. All right, Bill Bant, I know you you like the idea of Buck and Cammy being together, as do I. I like a summer romance, especially mm-hmm. when I was that age when this movie came out, too. And I was like, oh, boy, Lucy Deacons, who plays Cammy, very cute. Very cute. And good luck, Buck. Go for it. But uh, here's my take on this relationship in this movie. I was like, geez, I wish it were that easy. You just go to a resort in the woods, meet at a pool hall, uh, have the young girl insult you, stalk her at her place of work, meet at the local fair, don't say anything to her at all, only to end up in a rowboat in the middle of the lake to establish you're now in a relationship all of a sudden, boyfriend-girlfriend, and then it's time for the makeout sesh. And by the way, every time they cut to a scene between Buck and Cammy, it's the exact same piece of music, like an instrumental version of a 38 Special or John Waite song. And for me, the B story of the Buck and Cammy romance was totally shoehorned into this. Outside of Lucy Deacons being super cute, it's it's pointless because there's no purpose for it. It's a bland B story. It's no dirty dancing, meaningful coming of age summer romance on any level. It's just filler. I wish there was more to it. I wanted there to be more to it. And I know as a teenager watching the film, in my mind, I extrapolated some sort of background and, and added more to it. But uh, watching it now, I'm like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I know it is. But as a kid, I enjoyed it. And it was funny watching it this time. Cause there's the one scene when 
Buck goes to meet Cammy at her place of employment. And he's like, oh, what time do you get off at work? And she's like, eight o'clock. He's like, you want to meet at nine? And she says something to the effect of, so you can ditch me? And I'm like, oh, red flag right there. This girl's mm-hmm. psychotic. You better just run. You don't even know each other. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Jumping to conclusions. And what they don't know each other at all. They've no. literally just met. And like a scene or two later, they're on a rowboat making out. And she's like, so what am I to you? And he's like, you're my girlfriend. Wait, what? No, no, you not even friends. I know. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, when I was watching, I was like, how the fuck do you answer this? Whatever you say is going to be wrong. <laughs> right. That's funny, though, with the red flag thing. Totally. You could look at that like she's. Yeah. Oh, man. That's like your wife in a jeans moment. Do I look fat in these jeans? Oh, like, yeah. There's no. Yeah. That's when you just run out Be of the careful. house. Yep. Right. Just yeah. don't answer. You're better off just turning around, walking away. Mm-hmm. Get out. Get out of there. That's funny. I'm going to try to be selective here. I've got a handful more complaints, but I'll I'll narrow it down. What else do you got? I got two more. So one's okay. the, the crazy rain. So there's a scene when the rain begins, the rainstorm and bucks at the fair trying to find cammy and no one is getting wet what kind of rain is this <laughs> the park is Jeez. still operating yeah, okay. everybody's completely dry and it's pouring that was amazing i'd, I'd like to know what kind of rain that is lucky it wasn't acid <laughs> rain but it was very strange rain to me that's funny i have all these like detailed complaints but you <laughs> i totally overlooked that i guess i was i don't know i was overthinking things here that's great i love it A valid complaint, my friend. So here's a little discussion on what I call forced stakes, because there were no stakes for me in this film until all of a sudden at the end, the stakes appear like, oh, we're going to just make this up now. When Roman just reveals to Chet that he's a fraud and that he had lied about something, you know, he'd been manipulating Chet and he was trying to get Chet to invest in this opportunity, which was all BS. And amidst this revelation, all of a sudden, Roman's twin girls decide to walk off. They leave the cabin on their own in raincoats. They walk off into a thunderstorm in the middle of the woods. When earlier it's established, these twin girls are afraid of fireflies. I had this written down too. Why the hell would they walk into a storm in the middle of the night into the woods? So, yeah. Oh, they needed this to happen in order for the stakes to go up, in order for then the subsequent action to follow, which would connect Roman and Chet. They would put them closer together. So what ends up happening is... The girls then decide to investigate this abandoned mine shaft. They go in, they end up sliding down the shaft, and then now they're stuck inside the shaft. And now Roman and Chet go out into the storm searching for them. They find where they're located, and Chet's like, Roman, you got to go down there. And literally says to, and, and Roman, by the way, is a scaredy cat and says, no, I can't do it. And I'm as an audience member going, it's your kids, man. What are you talking about? You can't do it. And then, of course, Chet says the same thing. And he goes, Roman, they're your children. Be their father, for God's sakes. For the first time in your life, be their father. And I was like, what? There's no background foundation for this. Did we think that Roman wasn't there for them before? Like, not a good father? I guess maybe he's kind of a jerk and he's a blowhard and he's just this fast-talking, crass individual. But 
all of a sudden it's like, oh, Roman, you know, you need to do this. To, you have to save your children because you haven't been there for them in the past. And this is your opportunity to be there as a, fa- a real father. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We just got melodramatic. The, you know, this is super dramatic for there's been no foundation for this whatsoever. So I thought that was just like what I call forced stakes. They were just trying to up the game here at the end and make it dramatic for dramatic sake. And there was just no, no development. Like I've been saying, there's just, this hadn't been developed. I didn't buy it. I totally agree. Cause the three things I didn't like about it were we've hardly up to that point, know anything about the twins whatsoever. Not they're barely in the movie. They're running around in a rainstorm, which any other kid in their right mind would be running home from. Two, they start talking. Their little chatterboxes all of a sudden. They haven't said a word up to this point. Oh, we're going to have them talk now in the last 10 minutes of the movie? Okay. Right. And then three, when they go down the mine, they're down there with all that dynamite, which is... What was the point of the dynamite? Exactly. That dynamite is, the term is sweating. So all this nitroglycerin is squeezing. Them just sitting on the boxes... Probably should have set it off and blew them all to kingdom come. Well, you know a lot more about dynamite than I do. Oh, just from that one episode of Lost. Okay. All right. Take everybody watches Lost, it. they know exactly what I'm talking about. But <laughs> what the hell is this? Yeah, I had it down to that. The whole twin storyline made no sense to me. And then for my last complaint, and I didn't get this either. So in the beginning of the movie, John Candy does the bear story, which comes into play at the end of the movie because... The cave the girls come down to, the bear just happens to be there too, but no one sees the bear. So at the end, he does the punchline of of the bear story, and he throws some alcohol into the fireplace, and the fireplace kind of blows, and everyone's like, oh my god, that was so scary. And they all get mad at Chet. Like, he did the worst thing in the world. Right. You're in the woods. It's camping tradition. Right. Yeah, absolutely. What are you so mad at him for? Like, first Connie's into it, and then she's all pissed at him. Like, She turns on him, too. Yeah, You know where this was going. It's a camp story. By the fire. You tell something scary. It's not real. They've never heard of ghost stories while camping before. Like, they've never experienced this before. They can't buy it. He's being overly dramatic, too, when he's telling the story. He's clearly being theatrical. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Why is everybody just irate with him? Yeah. No idea. That's funny. Yeah. So at the end, the big reveal again is Roman's confession that he's a fraud and he hasn't been working as a wet, uh, investment broker for a couple of years now and that his family is broke and bankrupt. And so I'm like, well, what's the resolution to that then? That's a pretty serious situation for his family. But in the end, they seem pretty happy on their way out. There's no real discussion of the fact that their family is basically in ruins. I mean, I understand the and we understand that they're going to go live with the the Ripley's with Chet and his family. But still, I was like, you just dropped a bombshell here on your wife, on the entire family. That's like really serious. And I get it. It's a comedy. You can't dwell on it too much. We're just doing things for the sake of doing them because we need to get the stakes up and then we have to have resolution. And speaking of which, in the very final scene, Roman says, I'll race you home. And boy, man, I was like, that line would have really rung true had they been in competition the whole time. Had Chet and Roman been competing in everything up to that point 
And finally, they find a resolution. They come together. They have to work together to save the kids from the mine shaft. And then they have to save each other's families from they have to come together. Let's say Roman and Chet, you know, they no longer can compete. They actually find a way to work together to uh, defeat the bear. Great. And then in the end, it's like, oh, I'll race you home. It's like, oh, they're still going to end up competing. You're like, that's, you know, the little callback and that's the little period on it all. But no, it doesn't carry any weight at all. It's another missed opportunity. And it's funny because then Buck comes up to Chet. Buck comes up and says, uh, here's to the memories and like to the memories. And they share a secret like hand slap, which you've never seen before. And I'm like, what are you, what are we, why are you doing this now? Because a lot of it should have been, like you said, Bill Band, about Chet and his son, Buck, bonding and sharing the special time and making the memories. But they didn't really. And then at the end, Buck's like, yeah, we did. We had these memories. Hey, cool. We've got our secret little thing that are that just he and I, we do. And But no, we've never seen that before. So we don't care. No, great call on that. Oh, let's race it through my mind is, wait, what about their house? What about their stuff in the house? Isn't they going to sell that off? Is there just going to go straight to the Ripley's and just move in. That, that was the <laughs> yeah, adult of me deal. processing all this. Like as a right. kid, I didn't care. I'm like, Oh, it's so funny. They're all going to move in together. But now I'm like, wait a second. Is he going to sell the house? What, where are they going to put all their stuff? So it's not that easy. Just driving in, but no, that's a good one. Yeah. And even like you said, the callbacks. Yeah. The two perfect ones they could have had. They could have done the little handshake thing on the boat rowboat. They could have put that in part of that scene. I mean, Buck's running around yeah, it's weird. the whole time, so they're not making any memories. Right. <laughs> All right, time to move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Who do we choose this week, Jason? Well, Bill Bant, I'm going to take a moment and ask you this question, because I almost chose for, hey, it's that actor, Bart the Bear, but I couldn't recall. Did had we chosen Bart the Bear in the past? I know we talked about Bart the Bear. What was the film we did before that? Oh the bear yeah, was um, I couldn't. Tom remember Berenger. For the life of me. Was he? Was that oh, the bear? Shoot from, to kill. Was that the bear in Shoot to Kill? Shoot to Kill. There we go. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. That was getting to me because I was going to do Bart the Bear, but regardless, we are giving Bart the Bear a shout out here right now again. But this week, our Hey, It's That actor is Louis Arquette, who plays the role of Herm, a.k.a. the bartender, at the Potawatomi Lounge. Now, Louis Arquette's career spans decades, reaching back to the 70s. In the early 80s, he appeared in episodes of several big TV series, from Fantasy Island to The Waltons to The Incredible Hulk to St. Elsewhere and The Fall Guy. Way too many to name. And basically, look at his filmography on IMDb, and you'll see that he was in at least one episode of every TV series ever produced in the 80s. I'm exaggerating, of course, but it seems that way. As far as his infrequent film work, he was in The Great Outdoors in 88, and then Tango and Cash as the character Weiler. And after the 80s, I always think of him in my favorite mockumentary, Waiting for Guffman from 1996, and he plays the role of Clifford Woolley in that film. He was Chief Hartley in Scream 2. And he was also in the other Christopher Guest, well, one of the other Christopher Guest mockumentaries, Best in Show. And then he was also in Adam Sandler's Little Nicky. Louis Arquette passed away in 2001. 
But here's the last little factoid I'll leave with you regarding Louis Arquette. He was the father of five children. I will name them. Alexis Arquette, Richmond Arquette, and see if you recognize these three names. Rosanna Arquette, Patricia Arquette, and David Arquette. Yeah, I've heard of him. There you go. Yeah. Good call. Good call. Yeah, as soon as I saw him, I'm like, I know I've seen this guy in like 7,000 things. For sure. Great character actor. Yes, uh, the father of a few uh, big actors uh, that we would know quite well from the 80s on. I mean, Patricia, Rosanna, and David Arquette, all very well-known, famous actors. Which I don't think we've really done any of their movies yet, have we? No, and, and being the 80s, I know we'll probably get around to at least doing a Rosanna Arquette at yeah. some point, I would imagine. But no, good call on Hey, It's That Actor. All right, that takes us to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about the great outdoors? This film was shot on location in Bass Lake, California, a small resort town near Sierra Nevada National Forest over three weeks in October 1987, where it portrayed the fictional Lake Potawatomi Minimac. Ducey's Bass Lake Lodge, a rustic 1940s resort, was featured as Wally and Juanita's Perks Pine Lodge Resort. The Loon's Nest Vacation Cabin was built on the back lot at Universal Studios and was designed to match the style of Ducey's existing cabins. Yeah, there was that one shot when um, I think it's Wally's bringing the twins over to Roman to tell them about the mine. And you could tell, like, oh, man, completely obvious, way too obvious, but all good. So an early draft of the script showed Chet initially refused the old 96er challenge. However, it turned out that no one brought any money to pay for the meal and the waiters would not let them run back to the cabin to get it, thus forcing Chet to order and actually finish the steak. Another draft of the script also had Roman discovering Sentry's old gold coins in the mine shaft while rescuing his daughters and thus ending his financial woes. The scene where Roman's twin daughters got stuck out in the pouring rain was going to have Roman take on a giant killer fish to save them. However, the mechanical fish built for the scene was having problems working before shooting started, and for the lack of time, they scrapped it completely and rewrote it as them being trapped in the mine. I don't know if either of those scenes would have helped, but I did find that interesting. I'm not sure either. I was hoping for more regarding early drafts that might explain what happened with this movie. But I kind of go with your take that you'd mentioned earlier, Bill, that this was something that John Hughes had lying around that just never got made. It was like, yeah, why not? Let's get this done. Let's do this. And it was just some sort of like short story that pieces of all the other things that he had done. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, before the great... Outdoors appeared in theaters. Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, and Chris Young portrayed their roles during the end credits of She's Having a Baby, another John Hughes film, where they are among the people that pitch the idea names for the baby son of Jake and Christy in that movie. And uh, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, so now I, I want to go back. And I'd love to cover that film. I'm a fan of that movie, actually. And uh, now I, I do want to see the end credits of that film to see these characters from the great outdoors. Cause after I read that, I wanted to see if I could find it and I did find it. And it's basically a whole bunch of like who's who in Hollywood at the time are making baby names, like the wackiest baby name suggestions for um, Elizabeth McGovern and Kevin Bacon. 
And they go back to Aykroyd and Candy quite a few times. And you could tell they're on set. And I think they go to Chris Young once. But you don't know who their character names are. You just think, oh, that's Dan right. Aykroyd. Oh, that's John Candy. Oh, that's some I random kid. You. I have so no you idea don't who it know. is. Right. You wouldn't know. Yeah. No. And Chris Young, by the way, is the actor that plays Buck. Right. Correct. Yeah, but they have like Bill Murray's in there. Yeah, there's there's a ton of people. They have people on the yeah. street given names. Well, hopefully we'll discuss it more when uh, we cover that film. She's having a baby. Yeah, we will at some point. So you mentioned, um, you know, shooting took place in October of uh, 87. And one of the locations was Ducey's Bass Lake Lodge. Supposedly after filming wrapped in June of 1988, the um, bar and grill burned down as a result of a kitchen fire. And uh, they rebuilt the restaurant back in 1991. And supposedly, if you go there today, there's uh, tons of film memorabilia from the great outdoors there in the restaurant. Got it. Thank you for that. Bill, you'd mentioned that uh, you'd like to see a reboot or remake of this film because it could be done better. It could be made better because the seeds are there for a good comedy. And... In fact, on April 27, 2017, Universal Pictures announced that a reboot of the film starring Kevin Hart and produced by Michael DeLuca was in development. In a November 2, 2021 interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Aykroyd said that he was working on a sequel with Deutsch titled The Great Outlaws that would bring back Roman as a Ponzi scheme guy who victimizes a federal agent. In the interview, Aykroyd also said that he was looking for the Candy figure, the John Candy figure, to cast in the film. Yeah, no. Sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah, it does. Which is why six years later, nothing's happened. Just remake it. Just all new people. Sorry, Aykroyd, you're gone. Just get two new families. Just keep the basic premise and just change 85 minutes of the movie. You can even make it a little bit longer. I'm okay with that. Just develop the story. I don't have anything else for facts and trivia. We can keep it moving. All right, let's do that. So let's move on to box office. So The Great Outdoors was released on June 17th, 1988 in 1,233 theaters. On an estimated budget of $24 million, it grossed $41.5 million domestically. It debuted number three at the box office behind the number one movie, Red Heat, which was released that week, and behind Big Great Outdoors stayed in the top 10 for another three weeks. It was the 25th highest grossing movie domestically in the United States, just behind Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the late 80s, we would watch At The Movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of The Great Outdoors was unanimous. Two thumbs down. Siskel said, this picture stinks all the way through. While Ebert stated he was shocked that a movie starring Aykroyd and Candy failed so miserably. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 40% and it has an IMDb rating of 6.6. So this takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about The Great Outdoors? Well, I have a question for you, Bill Bant. Yes. Now, you explained earlier that you prefer the beach vacations, but have you ever spent any time at a cabin in the woods with the fam? Any rustic mountain vacations? No. 
I have stayed in a cabin though, but never for a family. It was actually for a work event and we were in the mountains and they had rented us cabins. So I did stay at a cabin for that, but no, not as this setting is. And here, okay, thank you for that. And and the second part of the question really is, if you have been on any family vacation, whether it be the mountains or the beaches, and you've been with extended family, have you ever been at the throats of some of your extended family? If there ever been some sort of real divisive argument or just, you know, a uh, situation of any kind where you just really, really are about to throw down with other family members? No. And it's kind of funny because as I mentioned quite a few times, we'd go down to Wildwood Crest in New Jersey and my grandparents would rent a place. Uh, it was on the corner of like New Jersey Avenue and Lotus and it's this green building and it had five, five bedroom place. So it would be my grandparents, my family, my uncle, their family, you know, my aunt. So there was like 15 of us packed in there for two weeks. And I never noticed anything as a kid, but maybe stuff happened that I didn't know about. But uh, no, for the most part, I mean, they're some of the best memories I've ever had as a kid growing up was being down there with everyone. That's great. I'm right there with you. I have a very large extended family on my mother's side, and I've had many, 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 many of uh, large family trips, vacations, reunions, etc. And for the most part, I can honestly say we've all gotten along. Now, when I was younger, there's probably things that happened behind closed doors or behind the scenes that I just didn't know about, but we mostly got along. You hear about those nightmare Thanksgivings, and there's plenty of movies that are about that. But no, no major uh, throwdowns in my, my family that I know of. Right. Here's a little fun fact, though, for you. Here's an additional thought I'm just going to throw in here. Did you, are you aware of what a loon is, Bill Bant? It's a bird, isn't it? You got it. It can also mean a crazed or deranged person. But loons or divers are a group of aquatic birds found in much of North America and northern Eurasia. The common loon swims underwater to catch fish, propelling itself with its feet. It swallows most of its prey underwater. The loon has sharp rearward pointing projections on the roof of its mouth and tongue that help it keep a firm hold on slippery fish. Loons are water birds, only going ashore to mate and incubate eggs. Their legs are placed far back on their bodies, allowing efficient swimming, but only awkward movement on land. The more you know. Yeah, interesting. Yep, didn't know anything about that. Yeah, what's cool, Bill Bant, is that my family actually does have a cabin in Wisconsin. Yeah, now. Lake Shishibagama. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so a handful of years ago, there was a reunion there, which I missed, unfortunately, and I look forward to getting back. But I have been there a few times. It's a beautiful cabin that our family actually built. Uh, I have uncles that would have, they still have work weekends where they'll go up there to make sure the cabin is uh, being taken care of and worked on as they see or deem fit. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful lake, beautiful. Like it's not necessarily like a resort town, but there are plenty of things to see and do and like horseback riding and everything. And it's very rustic and woodsy, Uh, but there are loons up there. That's why I actually knew about the loons. Cool. There in Wisconsin. Nice. You have some questions, thoughts for me, Bill Bant? Yeah, I have a question for you. So this is part of our Summer at the Cinema series. And yeah. we've covered another John Candy movie for this series. And that was uh, Summer Rental, which takes place yeah. on the beach 
So not giving away your rating, this we'll get to later on. What movie do you prefer, Summer Rental or The Great Outdoors? If you had to watch one right now. That's easy for me, Summer Rental, uh, 100%. As you know, well, we covered it on this podcast. And I remember thinking that movie was just okay. But I felt like I connected with the characters in the family situation and the situational comedy was a little bit more amusing. Yeah, I think I laughed a little bit more during that one. Okay. How about you? You know, I'd go summer rental also. Okay. Just because it's beach. <laughs> more familiar setting to me. There you go. You are partial to the beach. That's yes, funny. I am. Was the most interesting family in this movie the raccoons? <laughs> That's harsh. And I agree. Yes. I did say I did like the Ripley family, though. Yeah, and I'm going to touch on that next. Yeah, I was surprised when I saw the raccoons the first time. And I was like, oh, my God, I forgot about the raccoons. This is going to be stupid. But I actually liked them. It was it was funny. It's funny. And they got a post you know, like the raccoons purposely. And they seem to have the most motivation in the film. Yes. For what they do and how they behave. It's, it's, it's funny. And then there's the I almost forgot because I when I first revisited the film, I did not sit through all of the credits, but there is a post credit sequence yep. with the raccoons. And they're talking about their friend, Jody the bear, because we know the bear as uh, the bald headed bear of Clare County. But of course, the raccoons for them, the animal in the animal world, they uh, know the bear is Jody the bear. And they're like, you know, she got shot in the ass. <laughs> yep. Now she's bald on both ends. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's pretty funny. I'll be honest, the scene when the bear comes into the cabin and it attacks Roman on the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of like, how the hell did they do that? Like, I know when you see the shots with the bear and Ackroyd, it's fake bear. You can obviously tell. But there's a couple of shots when someone's got something in the bear's mouth. Right. Yeah. You couldn't pay me enough to do that. No, and that sequence was actually pretty well done. That was another sequence. I have to give him props for that, where it was pretty well shot overall, considering. It was like, that's pretty dangerous. Because you're watching that going, there's going to be a lot of fake bear shots in this. And there weren't as many as you might think. Right. And there were some realistic ones where you're going, that can't be safe. And I was impressed that they were even to get that bald cat on, which I then read that he did not like that at all. Yeah, see, I didn't see much in the research about Bart the Bear in this and how they they did a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I wished I knew more. Here's my last additional thought, Bill Bant, is that I'm just going to give props to the actress Stephanie Farisee, who plays Connie, Connie Ripley, the wife of Chet, played by John Candy. Uh, There's one scene that I did not mention in my favorite scenes that I'm just going to call out right now, and it's right after the water skiing incident. And... I just love this straightforward relationship scene. Oh, that is a good one. Between husband and wife. And, I mean, I really like this scene, especially when I revisit, went back and took my notes. It just establishes their silly, humorous rapport and familiarity and gives us a sense of a loving couple that has a shared history. And that's what I was looking for more of in this movie. It's like, oh, here's a developed relationship. And they just really know each other because they're just being goofy together. But it starts off with Chet just kind of recounting his harrowing experience water skiing after Roman had dragged him off the wooden pier and Chet's had enough and he's ready to pack it up and go home. 
back to Chicago and Connie enters and she asks him, what's driving him so crazy? And he's like, have you seen my ass lately? I'll be taking splinters out of it until the day I die. And she (laughs) starts giggling so naturally. And I can't tell if she's acting or just laughing at John Candy's performance. And she's, well, what about our kids and the father-son thing you wanted to do? And she then assures him that he's a big man and he's above all of the nonsense. And she begins tickling him and calms him down and Then he does this great bit where he suddenly pretends to choke her. He grabs her because John Candy's a big dude. And he just kind of grabs her and throws her on the bed. And he's not really choking her, of course. And he's like, why did you do this to me? Why did you calm me down? Because now I have to spend a week with Roman. And she's laughing the whole time. It's totally playful and real and great. And then she promises him that they'll have fun from there on in and she says, Roman's making goat cheese pizza. And immediately Chet then like snaps back into his like, uh-oh, what what pizza? And she's like, oh, this isn't good. So she kind of stumbles out of it and says, pizza? Pizza, ma- man pizza? Big pizza? Uh, and she just leaves. <laughs> it's good relationship stuff. Wish there was more of it in the film. Wanted to call out that scene. I thought she was pretty natural. And I wish uh, her character had more to do. Uh, and had more agency in the film, as well as Annette Benning, who's we haven't talked about Annette Benning. It's her debut, but that's we didn't talk about her because the character really doesn't do a damn thing in the movie, except she has that one scene when they're driving away, which she kind of accidentally guilts Roman. Right. That's that was it. it. That's all she had. All she was was like the cheerleader for Roman throughout. And then all of a sudden they give her lines. Eight minutes left to go. Underserved female characters in the movie. Mm-hmm. I like that scene between Chet and Connie. All right, so I'll ask this one last hard-hitting question, and then we'll move on. So how many dates until it is a girlfriend? What was your assessment? <laughs> Great question. We kind of touched on this, because I kind of felt the same thing. I'm like, I can't say girlfriend. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking of it in the context of how many dates would you have been on before it becomes, or when it becomes uncomfortable not calling the girl your girlfriend. Right. I would say if you've been on, I'm thinking five might be too, still not enough. Yeah, we're talking at this age level. At 14. Or whatever, 14. Or age 16. Yeah. Yeah, 14 to 16 range. Yeah, probably then my, I'm trying to think back to 14-year-old or 15-year-old Jason. If I had gone on. Maybe if you have five, between five to seven dates, at least it's, if I went on seven dates with a girl, she, I would think, you know, she should be my girlfriend at this point. Yeah, it's funny because it's probably a whole different world now. So it's probably like how many texts until you become boyfriend, girlfriend? I don't know if they actually go on <laughs> dates. It's just how many text exchanges? Yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure. Because, yeah, it's As not, like, kid, it's not yeah. like it's 2030s. Like after three dates, you know, it's hanky panky time. And it's like, no, nah, if you're that age. When are you boyfriend, girlfriend? Yeah, as adults now in the modern age, the landscape's totally different. We have just different ways of labeling things. I mean, right. there's a slow maturation of the actual label going from we're seeing each other, you know, Correct. and seeing someone, or I'm just dating someone versus the girlfriend label. And the levels of intimacy are totally different, just oh, depending yeah. on who you talk to. Uh, so... Yeah, good question. Good question. If anybody else has any thoughts, let us know. Yeah. Or if anybody, <laughs> anybody has any teenage daughters, 
let, let me know because I'm gonna have a teenage daughter soon. So I, oh I gotta, yeah, you're looking. I got to know when guidance. I, I got to pull yeah. out the yeah. the shovel and the shotgun. Mm-hmm. The lamp shotgun. Yeah. Is that what it was called? Shotgun lamp. That's yeah, what shotgun lamp. That takes us to our rating. So on a scale of one to five raccoons, what do you give the great outdoors? I'm giving this two point five raccoons, two and a half. I'll try to make this short. If you want John Candy in a summer comedy, I'd watch Summer Rental instead. We established that. Otherwise, you got plenty to choose from. In the 80s, he was awesome. Stripes, Splash, Spaceballs, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Uncle Buck, and even his small parts in Vacation or Little Shop of Horrors are phenomenal. I hate to say it, but this was a miss for John Hughes. They can't all be gems. It's all right. In the end, I'd still say this movie is worth watching. It has its moments. But overall, it's not entirely memorable. I'm with you. I put uh, two and a half raccoons myself. It did become a cult classic. So if you're one of those that haven't seen it in a while and used to enjoy it back in the day, I don't think you're going to watch it going, oh, this movie really sucks. I don't know. It's just it's an easy watch, but it's not a good movie. But I was never watching this going, oh, God, this movie's terrible. Yeah, okay, you know, whatever. And because it was 90 minutes, and even for the pot, I think I watched it like three and a half times. I didn't mind watching it, but right. it's not blowing me away. Yeah. There's just no real story. The story's underdeveloped. It's an average movie. Yeah. So I think that about wraps up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. For our next episode, our Summer at the Cinema series continues as we discuss The Flamingo Kid, starring Matt Dillon. We hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. If you meet any friends, bring them back and we'll give them a ride and suck my wake. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.